This week, we're re-releasing our Carolina Girls series. We have some updates to offer on a few of the cases and hope to bring more attention to those that are still cold. Each episode will provide you updates at the top of the re-release. Episodes 1 and 2 were primarily focused on the case of Brittany Locklear, a North Carolina kindergartner who was kidnapped and murdered in January of 1998. In October of 2021, Brittany's case was featured on The Daily Beast, which garnered new national attention for her homicide investigation. Connie Chavis, Brittany's mother, told The Daily Beast that, concerning resolution in Brittany's case, quote, her family will never give up hope. There will be justice. If not here, he'll pay for it in the hereafter. Local law enforcement expressed their concern that without a DNA hit, Brittany's case would remain cold. One new tool that could aid in future cases like Brittany's is a website that our producer Mora pointed out to us. The North Carolina Center for Missing Persons has revamped their digital presence to allow for real-time alerts and a streamlined reporting process to get the news of missing persons out to the public more quickly. ABC 13 News reported that the website will also offer, quote, real-time reporting on missing person stats, alert notifications, and alert information. All alerts are now automated and activated with the push of a button, end quote. Another more well-known case we touched on in episode one is that of Asia Degree. She has been missing since Valentine's Day 2000. Though it has been more than two decades, investigators told WBTV that the case is still very active and that leads and tips are still coming in. In fact, per the station, the Cleveland County Sheriff received 45 tips and the FBI 20 tips between February of 2021 and February of 2022. At one point, there was hope that a North Carolina inmate currently serving a sentence for sexual assault of a child had information that could lead to resolution in Asia's case. Per the Shelby Star, a man named Marcus Mellon wrote to the paper that, quote, the child was killed and he knows how and where to find her, end quote, in November of 2020. However, by February of 2021, the Cleveland County Sheriff announced that they had ruled that information unreliable. This episode contains discussion of autopsy, violence against children, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Over the years, what types of, like, rumors do you feel like you hear over and over again? The same thing over and over, like tips and uh, leaves. I've heard them over and over. And it gets frustrating sometimes. Because that's a lot of what happened to Brittany's case. Rumors and not not calling them facts and stuff. And they had to go through all these leads, and that's wasting time that they could be working on her case. This season, we look at cases from North and South Carolina, the states missing and murdered who've sunk below the radar, or whose cases were overshadowed by other large-scale investigations. 
They're from Appalachia, the Rocky Coast, from the lowlands, and everywhere in between. We start with two states that were once one, built up on forced labor and growing plenty of tobacco in the north and rice in the south. Land hollowed out and renamed in the territory of the Catawba, PD, Cherokee, Waccamaw, Edisto peoples, to name only a few. South Carolina was the first southeastern state to secede from the Union in 1860. North Carolina was the last. And the order doesn't make much difference when Dixie's playing in the background. 155 years later, a young woman named Bree Newsom would climb the South Carolina State Capitol's flagpole to remove a Confederate flag still flown below the American flag over a century after secession failed. In North Carolina and in South Carolina, there's plenty of history if you want to go looking for it. You have to dig into the rocky beaches and the Blue Ridge Mountains and big cities and famous universities and little towns with names like 96 and Lizard Lick and Kill Devil Hills. Neither North or South Carolina rank in the top 10 or even the top 20 in unsolved murders or in missing person cases, not according to FBI records. There are counties that were, or are, marked by high rates of violent crime. Mostly, though, areas like Winston-Salem or Shelby or Aiken only have a handful of entries on their sheriff's cold case webpages. Missing, murdered, unidentified. There are a few well-known unsolved cases like the Sumter County Doe's or the murder of Faith Hedgepeth, but most of the other cases have been forgotten, or they've never gone national at all. Some barely received coverage at the time of their disappearances or murders, even in their own hometown newspapers. There were famous cases that made it to trial like Susan Smith, who killed her children by submerging her car in a lake, or Michael Peterson, who was accused of pushing his wife down the stairs. But those are the exception. Most just fade. This series began with a case that's somewhere in between, known in true crime communities, but not in the cultural consciousness, the disappearance of Aisha Degree. If you're unfamiliar with Aisha's case, Aisha was nine years old when she disappeared from her home in Shelby, North Carolina, on February 14, 2000, during a storm. She seems to have left home of her own accord, and she took a backpack with her. There have been reports of motorists who claimed to see Aisha on a road that night. Some of her belongings were later found in a shed, and still later, her book bag, wrapped in plastic, was recovered at a construction site. Neither has led to Asia, and her family has been searching for 20 years. Asia's is our most requested case, one of the few disappearances of a Black child that has attracted the efforts of web sleuths and researchers or been featured on podcasts or in long-form articles. Our general rule is to work on cases where there's little information available, cases where we can add value by building knowledge where we won't get in the way of someone else who might be the best person to tell a more well-known story, someone with lived experience. So we held off. But 
We always said that we'd be honored to cover Aisha's case if her family wanted to collaborate, to put their own words at the forefront. After a number of Shelby, North Carolina locals wrote to us, we did eventually reach out to the degrees, but they didn't respond. So though Aisha is most certainly a Carolina girl, a child whose disappearance we think about all the time, she's not a focus in this series. If things change for the degrees, we're here. That brings us to who is in the series and how we found the stories. It started with Aisha and then branched out, little threads unspooling in different directions. When we look at a case, we try to ferret out others like it. Not necessarily linked, but we follow the thread. Similar in location, in victim, in treatment by law enforcement or media, or even similar in era. We get a feel for the place. Which cases get solved or don't can tell you a lot about a region, a place, and a time. As we were doing our early regional research, a new focus developed. Eventually, that path took us into South Carolina, too. What we noticed were the girls. There are always girls in every city, and more likely to get media attention than boys. But there was something about the cases. Missing on sunny afternoons. Kidnapped from their own yards, gone after bus rides, or walks home from school, or to the store. From bus stops, from safe little parks, bikes found abandoned in broad daylight when it should have been safe to ride. Some of these girls were eventually recovered, but not for a reunion. Some are gone without a single lead. There have been a few trials, an occasional suspect, sometimes even someone from their own family. Some of their pictures posted up in the local sheriff's departments are a reminder of a case unresolved. Others, well, not even law enforcement knows their names. Some of the cases are 50 years old or even beyond, with families passing away one by one until their loved ones' cases are gone with them. Sometimes they're still listed in NEMAS, with a single black and white photo. In some cases, there's no photo at all. Some are old enough that there aren't police files left to review. Others, dating around the turn of the 21st century, are still classified as open and active, with detectives still working them when they can. This season, we'll tell you about a few of those cases, some well-known in their own hometowns and others buried so deep that even microfiche and archives can't fill in the gaps. This series grew out of our hope that, with luck, we might create a contemporary record and attract some attention. Maybe you're in the Carolinas right now, and we'll hear about your own town. See what you can do to revive these cases. Like in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, there's the case of 14-year-old Sherry Lee Truesdale. Hers is the oldest missing persons case in the city. Sherry Lee's accessible internet presence is almost wholly limited to NamUs and the Charlie Project, where she's described as having disappeared on June 13, 1970, a Saturday. That weekend, there was a terrible storm. Sherry Lee took a bus ride into town and was never seen again. Those few details are all you'll uncover unless you have access to archives and microfilm where a few more pieces can be puzzled together. A 1998 Winston-Salem Journal article adds a few important details, like that 
Sherry had received a scholarship to attend a prestigious summer arts program and that she took the bus into town so that she could get the supplies. According to the article, Sherry also planned to run errands for her mother and her sister Ernestine. Police later ascertained that she made it to a department store where she made an account payment for her mother. That was at about 4.30 p.m. The clerk who waited on her was also the last person to see Sherry. The author of the article, Lorenzo Perez, wrote that, quote, Sherry's parents and friends spent the night searching for her in the neighborhood and nearby Happy Hill Park. It rained heavily, and Sherry's parents worried that perhaps she drowned in one of the overflowing creeks, end quote. There's no mention of a police search on that initial night, but it is reported that law enforcement eventually spent six weeks looking for Sherry and had, quote, few leads. They closed her case in 1971, despite there being no resolution. It was only picked up again in 1998, thus the news article. As in many of the unresolved but closed cases we've covered, Sherry Lee Truesdale was a Black teenager living in a sharply segregated town one where schools had only become fully integrated in 1970, the year she disappeared, one where a missing persons case might be closed in a year, long before there was an organization like NICMEC to help. According to Sherry's sister Ernestine, who was quoted in the 1998 article, Sherry's parents were destroyed by the loss of their daughter. Their home was near a bus stop, and as Ernestine told reporter Perez, quote, Mama cried a lot. We had a front porch where she could see the bus stop. Every time a bus would come around that curb and she wouldn't see her, she'd start crying. Sherry's parents died without answers. Ernestine did too. When we reached out to the Winston-Salem police, they said they'd already shared all pertinent details with the press and declined to fulfill FOIA or do an interview. Though we did speak with Sherry's niece, Ernestine's daughter, she didn't go on record. When we went through local microfilm from 1970, we found one article on Sherry's disappearance. We can't claim that search was exhaustive. Perhaps not everything was digitized, but after looking through film for the whole year, we only found that one short column. There was more coverage of the storm that pelted Winston-Salem that same weekend. Sherry Lee Truesdale was described by her mother in that Winston-Salem Journal column from 1970 as having a light brown complexion, brown eyes, and long black hair. She was approximately four foot two and weighed 75 pounds. Around the time she disappeared, a woman walking her dog was assaulted by two men, not far from Sherry Lee's last known location. As far as we can tell, they were never caught. Even to this day, no leads have been shared with the public regarding Sherry's case. And each year that passes, fewer are alive who can remember her. Though our news feeds tell us otherwise, the world has gotten safer since the 1970s. More insular, but safer all the same. But children still disappear, and cases still go unsolved. We wanted to cover Sherry Lee in her own series, and we still will if we can. But her case led us to another girl, also from North Carolina, on a day that also began at a bus stop. Nearly 28 years after Sherry disappeared, a little girl named Brittany Locklear put on her red jacket and walked to the edge of her own front yard in the daylight, where she should have been safe. 
Brittany lived just outside a town called Rayford in rural Hope County, the coastal plains south and east of the state capital of Raleigh. Hoke has plenty of sandy soil and is intersected by highways and state routes. Part of Fort Bragg takes up a corner of the county. That means that there's a significant military population, big enough that Fort Bragg proper has its own census designation and is spread across three counties. There are plenty of military families living off base, too, in Hoke and in Cumberland and Harnett and more. Hoke is a rural county with a mid-sized population. Lots of farmland, small neighborhoods off rural highways, mobile homes with plenty of land, fields designated for military drills. Outside of the military, the major industries are agriculture and manufactured goods. The North Carolina Pedia lists plenty of each. Turkey, tobacco, corn, soybeans, cotton, hogs, beef... Wool, polyester, beauty aids, concrete blocks. The major employers, besides the military, are mostly in manufacturing, healthcare, education, retail, trade. Working in manufacturing plants and healthcare facilities comes with plenty of second and third shifts. When we drove into Hope to see a woman named Connie Chavis, she told us that her daughter Brianna, her younger daughter, wouldn't be coming. Brianna had planned on it, but had just gotten off third shift at work and had been taking care of her sick father. She was exhausted. Connie's home is five and a half hours from Atlanta, more like six or seven with the endless road construction and crawling traffic of I-20. She lives down a winding road, her home situated in a clearing. Her yard ringed with decorative statues and lots of outdoor art, especially of flowers. She's not from Hope County, but she's lived in the area for more than 20 years. According to Hope County's official website, the county formed in 1911. Like so many other places in the South, it was named after a Confederate general. North Carolinapedia notes that the land now called Hoke was once the territory of the Cherau people. It's also home to the Lumbee people, who still live there today. Per the census, nearly 12% of Hope County's population is classified as, quote, Native American. For comparison, North Carolina census data lists the state's overall indigenous population at 1.4%. Currently, the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina makes up a significant portion of the population in Hoke and have since long before there were counties named for Revolutionary War generals or Highland settlers. The news coverage of the Lumbee people, when there is any, is similar to what other indigenous peoples receive. Often it's heavy with that familiar, flat, dominant culture narrative of tragedy. That doesn't sit so well when you visit the area, and it doesn't sit well with the people it claims to describe. That kind of reporting, focused on all the things that go wrong or are wrong and nothing else, can create a warped and frustrating picture. It renders an area, a people, a tribe as static, historic, gathered up into statistics to tally poverty, unemployment, or drugs. And that gross simplification is a disservice. Imagine it as one photo still from a feature film that hasn't stopped playing. There's much more to the history 
as well as contemporary life in the Lumbee counties than we can capture here. We could talk about the founding of many prominent Methodist churches in the Southeast, of the works of Lumbee scholars and theologians you can buy at university bookstores, or of 1950s confrontations with the Ku Klux Klan. We could talk Lumbee patchwork craft, family farms, fraternal organizations, the Locklear Vineyard. We could talk about the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, which began as a teacher's college for Lumbee undergraduates. We could talk about the ongoing battle for Lumbee federal recognition, and on and on. If some of this feels a little familiar, we have mentioned the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina before, during our coverage of the Jenkins County Jane Doe. In season four, we touched on the lack of data on missing and murdered indigenous women in the Southeast and how lack of federal recognition for some tribes can be a factor in that. There are a number of recent unsolved murders of Lumbee women in Robeson County, again, getting very little press, and to our knowledge, not counted in any federal statistics on the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. This ties into Brittany's story in many ways. Her family is Lumbee. Her mother, Connie, grew up in Lumberton, in Robeson County. She moved to Hope County, just outside Rayford, the county seat, when her eldest daughter, Brittany, was a baby. Connie's youngest child, Brianna, was born in Hoke. And the family, two daughters, Connie and her then-husband, Charles, lived there in January of 1998, when Brittany was just five years old. Brittany loved going to church, playing with dolls, and spending lots of time outside. Her school ran year-round, and she'd been in kindergarten since July. She had brown eyes, curly, brownish-blonde hair. In a portrait photo that would be circulated after her death, she wears a fancy pink dress with puff sleeves, lined with plenty of white lace. Her hair is pulled back with a bright pink bow, and she's smiling. Based on that picture, she hadn't even lost her first tooth. Brittany Locklear is one of the thousands of indigenous women and girls who have disappeared or been killed in the United States. But as we said, she hasn't been counted in federal statistics. And even among the federally recognized tribes all across our country, it's become clear that the missing and murdered are massively underreported by law enforcement and in government databases. In our series on the Jenkins County Jane Doe, we covered some of the reasons why and how that underreporting occurs, and why the true extent of the crisis isn't reflected in mainstream media. Few, if any, media reports at the time of Brittany's kidnapping and death make mention that she is Lumbee. But Connie Chavis, her mother, feels it impacted aspects of what came after. Racism sunk deep into institutions and in assumptions. When she moved to Hoke in the mid-90s, she and her then-husband Charles Chavis, they didn't know many people. Her in-laws were nearby, but her own siblings were back in Robeson, and her parents were working in other parts of the state. The little family didn't live in a close-knit neighborhood either. They lived along a rural road a little ways back, and though they often saw the across-the-street neighbors, the butlers, they weren't close. Most of Brittany's social interaction would happen at her school, West Hoke Elementary. Once called, quote, a Tier 1 distressed county, Hoke's official website says that the county no longer has that designation. 
job prospects have steadily improved, and the Chamber of Commerce credits, quote, aggressive action on the part of officials to improve employment. Like the rest of the country, Hoke and the counties surrounding it have been touched by drug crises, methamphetamines, and later opioids. There have also been issues with water supply safety and the upkeep of the county courthouse. Property crime in Hoke is roughly double the national average. And in the Quad Counties as a whole, there's been a rise in homicide rates. There were a series of unsolved murders, mostly of Lumbee women, that haven't made much impact via the national press. Back to Brittany. North Carolina adopted the Amber Alert system in 2002, six years after the death of Amber Hagerman in Dallas, Texas, a girl who was kidnapped while riding her bike and whose body was found days later in a creek. In 1998, when Brittany Locklear was kidnapped, there was no such system in place. The news media televised Brittany's picture very quickly. Connie remembers that, but there was no way of immediately contacting the residents of the rural county. They didn't know what to watch out for. And when they did find out, they joined search parties. They called in hundreds of tips, passed along information. But it was too late. The story begins on Wednesday. January 7th, 1998, a school day and the first week back after the holiday break. It wasn't seasonably warm, hitting the mid-70s by afternoon, but the morning was chilly. Connie Chavis got up that morning to help Brittany get ready for school, just like she had for months. Like other children on her street, Brittany rode the bus, and she couldn't be late to the stop. She waited outside her own house at the edge of the road. Connie would wait with her, holding baby Brianna and making sure Brittany got off safely to school. On the morning of January 7th, they were out there like always, gazing down the road for signs of the bus. Connie needed to use the bathroom, so she hurried inside the house with baby Brianna, wanting to be back out before the bus arrived. And when she made it back out to the side of the road, Brittany was gone. When we visited Connie, she talked us through that morning in January. It's been 22 years, so she can't recall every detail of the day. But then again, there are plenty that have stayed with her, clear and painful. Can you tell us what you remember? I remember what she had on and everything, and that's what she said to me. Yep. And that's the worst day of my life. You know, I don't like talking about it all the time, but sometime I will. You said you remember what she said to you? Mm-hmm. That she loved me. That was the last word she said to me. Yeah. And I can remember what she had on. She had on um, the little Arizona coveralls, white baseball shirt. White and pink uh, footies and a white and pink Reeboks on. With her little red coat, like a little red riding hood coat. Yeah, I can remember that. And initially you thought that the bus had come by? Yes, ma'am. When did you realize that there was a problem or that it wasn't the bus that had come by? When my next door neighbor came by. And told me that uh, they thought that Brittany had been kidnapped. 
You know what I said? But, you know. But then I went to school. I went to schoolhouse first and waited on the bus to get there. And when the bus got there and she wasn't there, that's when I went to the sheriff's office. You went straight to the sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. And you had your baby with you. Mm -mm. I had uh, carried her down there to uh, my mother-in-law's because I didn't want her, you know, to be out in the weather and stuff. So you were by yourself? Me and my ex-husband. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when y'all first got to the sheriff's office, how how did you feel like people received you? Well. Did they sort of realize it was a great emergency? Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say that. they uh, Her preacher went worldwide in less than five minutes, you know. Yeah. They. From that point on right when you got to the sheriff's office, did they take you back to your house? No. So what happened from there? I done a lot of in, uh, interviews with uh, different uh, laws and stuff and talked to the sheriff. And um, before I left, before I left from the sheriff's department, uh, they brought her book sack in. They found her book sack. That's before I left the sheriff's department that morning. But they didn't find her, the rest of her clothes until the next day. Can you remember some of the things that were running through your mind? It kept running through my mind that it was somebody that wanted a child, you know, and it should be found. And I never thought of murdering or nothing like that. You were thinking maybe somebody didn't have a baby and wanted to have one of their own. Yeah. When Connie saw that Brittany was gone, on the school bus, she thought, she stepped back inside her home. Soon, though, there was someone knocking at the door. The across-the-way neighbor, Keith Butler, stood on the trailer's porch. He told Connie that his wife, Rose, had seen something. So let's go back to that day, that exact day, where you were in the house, did you get a knock on the door? Yes, ma'am. And it was from Keith Butler. That was uh, my next door, um, next door neighbor. And he he's the one that told me that he thinks that Brittany had got kidnapped. According to Keith, a truck had pulled up beside Brittany. And once it went down the street again, the little girl was gone. Rose had seen it from her window. We asked Connie if she was given any more information in that moment. But she wasn't. The details that are now part of the record would come later, when law enforcement questioned Keith and the other children who'd been waiting for the bus. They were a ways down the road, but they also reported seeing that truck. Per the Raleigh News and Observer, Rose Butler was able to offer information on the driver and the vehicle. She, quote, described the suspect as a white man driving a full-size pickup truck. Other early reports described a brown or tan truck. Eventually, that description would broaden. The Charlotte Observer wrote in 2003 that witnesses eventually offered a number of different descriptions. Quote, a man in a pickup stopped at the driveway. Maybe he was white, maybe Indian, or maybe a light-skinned black man. The truck might have been brown, maybe tan. Maybe it had lights on the roof. End quote. During that first week, though, Law enforcement were looking for a white man in a brown truck, and they thought that he'd probably be local. Who else would have a reason to drive that rural road before 7 in the morning? 
But Connie didn't know that then. She didn't have a description. That would only come when the sheriff's department interviewed all the witnesses. All she knew was that something was very, very wrong. She took baby Brianna to her mother-in-law's house, and they hurried to Brittany School, West Hoke Elementary. There, she found out that, no, Brittany hadn't been on the bus. No, the bus driver hadn't seen her waiting. That's when the terror set in. Connie's father-in-law drove Connie and Charles to the sheriff's department, where they reported what Rose had seen. Connie said that the response was immediate, that Brittany's picture, quote, went worldwide. Pre-Amber Alert, that would have meant BOLO, that's be on the lookout, alerts to the media, to neighboring counties. It's unclear how long it took them to get a description of the suspect. Hope County officials declined to be interviewed for the story, so we can only work from Connie's memories, media timelines, and the few official reports that we received through our FOIA request. We do know that the search began immediately. According to the Robisonian newspaper, then-Sheriff Wayne Byrd had 40 law enforcement officers from his own department and the State Bureau of Investigation out searching for Brittany that morning. They spread out over Greenlee Road, where the Chavises lived, walking through the woods, into the farmland, and past drainage ditches. We assume they would have begun a countywide search for the brown truck, too. All the while, Connie, Charles, and her father-in-law, who'd driven them to the station, spoke with police and tried to fill them in. They gave a description of what Brittany was wearing and of her small book bag. Later, they'd provide a photo to be used in the media. Brittany in her pink dress. We spoke to Connie about the events of that morning. At some point, did they bring you back to your house or? No, uh, my old father-in-law, he had drove the truck over there. So I went back with him. And I stayed there at the church department a long time because my mama was working um, in um, Vermont, and she, her and my dad, and my daddy was working in Lumberton. They had both got there at the church department before I left. So I was there a couple hours. So your time was sort of taken up being asked these questions, and did you have a feeling like you wanted to get out there and look for her? Was it hard for you to stay in one spot? Yeah, and I did go to the old, where they were um, there on 41, where they had set up the oil, where they were looking for. I went there, and I seen all them blue lights and red lights, and I, my cousin, just went on back home. When you were at home, were you having trouble figuring out what to do with yourself? Yeah. If it wouldn't be for my mom and my sister, I don't know what I was doing. The search stretched into the evening and the night. Law enforcement didn't bring Brittany home, but they did find her small book bag. And her overalls and shoes were also recovered, but in a different area. The search was called off in the late evening but would reconvene the next morning with the aid of hundreds of volunteers. For Connie and Charles Chavis, it was a painful, lonely night, even though family drove in to be with them. So they were there mm-hmm. with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom, and, my mom and dad and my sister stayed with me like for two nights. But then 
uh, Britney's uh, daddy. Uh, we still, his mom and dad stayed with us in the door for uh, two weeks. After that, you know. So you had lots of family. Yeah. With you. Did you get any sleep the first night? I didn't get no sleep, no rest in days. I mean, I never got a time, no time to uh, even think because the media stayed in my face, you know, and the media and the newspaper and the law enforcement and all that. So your family stuck with you. Mm-hmm. When, like, yeah. when other people maybe felt like it was too painful to. Yeah. So. They found her backpack. Yes, ma'am. The same morning. Yeah. And then I think, was it the next day? Did they find her clothes first? Yeah. And when you got this news, your family was with you. Yeah. You know, what? I gave up then, you know. I knew it. Might not see her alive again. And I didn't. Thursday, January 8th, 1998. Search teams swarmed over Hope County, even as local law enforcement was overwhelmed with phone calls, tips, rumors, sightings of trucks. Eventually, a tip line would be set up, but that Thursday, efforts were concentrated on speaking to witnesses and combing through the side roads, the fields, and the brush. And that Thursday, they found her. According to the SBI's website, Brittany's body was recovered from a drainage ditch about three miles from her home. The ditch ran alongside, quote, a farmer's road and wouldn't have been easy for someone unfamiliar with the area to access. The details of Brittany's autopsy were released gradually over weeks. It's likely the sheriff held back details initially to make questioning suspects easier. And the medical examiner's file is very disturbing. We will only summarize it here. Brittany had been sexually assaulted and then drowned. Based on what was found at autopsy, the drainage ditch itself was the site of her drowning. Law enforcement secured the scene and the Chavises were informed. Can you remember when you found out that they had found her? 33 hours from the time she was kidnapped. To when I find out they have found her. Mm-hmm. What was the first thing that you did? It's been like it's gonna be twenty one, yeah, no, twenty two years. It'll be twenty two years in January. I couldn't do no more cry, you know. It still hurts every day. It always hurt. Some people say you'll get over it, but. Mm, not losing a child. No, you don't never get over that. That's something you don't never get over. I, a lot of people told me, you know, you'll get over it, you'll get over it. It'll get better in time, but unless they lost a child or their own, they don't know what I'm going through with. Have you met any other people who've lost children? Yeah, my, matter of fact, yes, ma'am. Um, my sister lost her son. He was 18. He passed away. And then I've got several cousins that, well, one of my cousins, 
her son her son um committed suicide. And then her sister, one son got killed in a car wreck and the other one got killed like four days have been four years from when her other son got killed. Like he got hit by a train. And then I have another cousin. All these are sisters. We have heard that it's a very lonely place to be when you lose a child and people around you have not. Yeah. They can't. They can't possibly know what you're going through with. No. So even though you had your family there with you, mm -hmm. it was, you were, you were alone. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It's rough. Next time on The Fall Line, we continue with Brittany Locklear's story. What law enforcement discovered and who eventually became a suspect. How the case unfolded over the hours, days, and weeks that followed. We'll talk about Connie Chavis's search for answers. You'll also hear more about other Carolina cases like Brittany's. Some cold, others all but solved missing just one vital piece of information to take them to resolution. Some sunk into obscurity, waiting for an audience to revive the investigation. Other girls like Sherry Lee, stories told in a single article on fading microfilm. To learn more about the history and current culture of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina, we again recommend that you read the books of scholar Melinda Maynor-Lowry which are Lumbee Indians in American Struggle and Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South. They're both great, and you can find a link in our show notes, along with a link to the tribal government website. We've also included a link to the website for the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support the show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Our research assistants are Haley Gray and Kim Fritz. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. <laughs>